Good morning. Um, so glad you're with us. And I'm going to start with uh, one of life's most important questions. Do you remember Sinbad? <laughs> remember him? Uh, stand-up comedian, actor, 80s, 90s. Um, Sinbad was kind of all the rage back, uh, back, back around the mid-90s. He was, he was in a lot of things. He was doing a lot of stand-up, a lot of people laughing at his jokes. And in 1994, Sinbad was in a movie called Shazam. Okay? Shazam, Sinbad, aptly named Sinbad, he plays a genie. Okay? He plays a genie, and the, the two kids, brother and sister, find the, the genie lamp. And of course, as all good genie stories go, accidentally rub it and, you know, to dust it off, and Sinbad comes out and grants them wishes. And, um, and as the plot of the movie goes... Um, the, the kids, it, it turns out that they were orphans and that their, their father was gone and they wanted their father back. And Sinbad coaches them through, you know, he's just a genie. He can't do that. Okay. And, um, and, and so all that to say, I, I looked for pictures of this movie to try and show you, to give you a visual. But here's the thing. The movie actually doesn't exist. Okay? It doesn't exist. There's a strange thing that has happened where people all over, well, I mean all over the world, but at least all over the country, they all have this shared memory. And some of you are looking at me quizzically because you're like, I remember that movie. Okay? When I first heard about this, I said, oh, I remember, I remember Shazam. I remember this. But it actually doesn't exist. There are people all over the United States that, that have now, with the power of the internet, have gathered online and they've, they, they have very specific memories about the movie Shazam, including people from all over the place that remember that basic plot line. Okay? They, like, people that don't know one another will share that same plot line about, about the orphan children, and they want their father back, and, and Sinbad being Shazam, the genie, it can't give them their father back. Like, the details are, are crazy. Sinbad himself has said, I don't know what people are talking about. <laughs> I know what I was doing in 1994, and it wasn't starring in a movie called Shazam, okay? But it's just gone, okay? Anybody, anybody in the room that when I started talking about it, you were like, yeah, I remember Shazam. Anybody? Yeah. It doesn't exist. I, in fact, there's, there's, there are people that have put up, you know, not enormous amounts of money, but, but significant amounts of money if, if anyone can prove that Shazam exists, and to date, no one can claim the money. Now, there's, there's explanations for it, um, one explanation of some conspiracy theorists is that uh, Sinbad himself, in all of his mighty power, um, being a B-list celebrity, you know, in, in the 90s, has, was so ashamed of it that he somehow, like, gathered every copy of it and every image. That's unlikely, right? Okay? Um, it's... It's, there's, there's, it's, there's, a, there's another sort of term for this called the Mandela effect. Okay, the Mandela effect is named after Nelson Mandela, the, the former president of, of South Africa, who, when he was imprisoned in South Africa, people had very specific memories during the 1980s when he was imprisoned that he had died in prison. And then when he was freed from prison and elected to be the, the, the president of South Africa, people said, this, is, this can't be possible because he died. They were, had very specific memories about it. And this, this term came for this, these collective memories that people share that, that are just kind of gone. Like, how, where did the memory come from? What is this? Okay? 
And then, of course, you can get into some really wild theories about, about alternate universes and all kinds of things. But I tend to believe that if there's an alternate universe, there never should have been a movie named Shazam starring Sinbad in that universe either. Um, but the most likely one, and um, I didn't pull an image just for the sake of time, but, but the most likely one is that in 1996, Shaquille O'Neal starred in a movie called Kazam, where he is a genie and he grants wishes to a kid. Okay? So it's, it, the most likely explanation is that somehow in people's minds, the different things about Sinbad have been merged into this, this movie. Okay? But it's as if the movie Shazam, it was there and then pff, gone. Okay? Now that's just kind of a, a silly movie, right? That didn't exist, but I'm positive it did. I remember it. I remember passing over to Blockbuster many times. Um, but... But what we're going to do for the next several weeks is actually we're going to ask the question, what if the resurrection never happened? What if, what if a couple thousand years ago, Jesus was executed in, in an outpost of the Roman Empire and he stayed dead? Okay? What if all of our collective thoughts about the resurrection, what if... What if those didn't happen? What if, what, if, what if it didn't happen and our collective thoughts are just wishful thinking or our collective thoughts are just, just made up? Or what if, what if the, the resurrection as, a, as an idea, what if it's non-essential? What if it's not critical? What if it, it doesn't matter? And people have been trying to, um, to refute the resurrection since it happened. Actually, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, the guards who were, who were guarding the prison when Jesus was, was raised from the, from the dead, they, they, they were stunned and startled, and they went to the Jewish leaders. And, and this is what it says in Matthew chapter 28. It says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, the earthquake, the light, the angels. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, when Matthew would have been writing a couple decades later. The story of the resurrection from the very beginning was controversial. It, it, it was a game changer. It forever altered the course of history. And, and from that very beginning, the, the religious leaders of the Jews, they wanted it, they didn't want it to be true. And, but yet they didn't have an explanation for it, and so it was known amongst the people that they had, they had paid these guards, they had paid the witnesses to it to say that it didn't happen. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to actually take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for the next three weeks. If you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, and and. And this question, it was, it, was so, um, it was so important, even in that first century, that Paul, when he writes the church in Corinth, he spends a, a lengthy section of his letter to the church in Corinth talking about the reality of the resurrection. What difference does it make? What if it didn't happen? What if there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead? And Paul's writing to this church in Corinth because in the city of Corinth, there was, it, was a, it was a shipping city, a sort, of a, sort of a sailor city. It was a, it was a major city. Economically, it was very important. And there were all kinds of people from all over the world who gathered there. And, and in the city of Corinth, there were a lot of, it was a place where a lot of, of false religions had gathered. 
but they also had sort of a duality of, of, of body and spirit. And so, so they had ideas, and one of those ideas was simply this. Dead means dead, and it stays dead. They didn't have a concept for a bodily, physical resurrection. Okay? They didn't, like that, didn't, that idea didn't exist to them. It was something that they would have dismissed out of hand. And so here comes this, this new religion from within, this sort of, this sort of shoot that, that, that rises up, emerges out of the Jewish sect. And these people who are claiming the name of Jesus and, and, and pivotal to their belief system, pivotal to, to their faith, is this belief that Jesus had been executed, killed, dead, but now he's alive again. And this is critical to them, but the people in Corinth, even the people who had, who had joined up with Christianity, even the people of faith, those people still had a hard time coming to terms with this. And before we sort of look back and say, like, well, that was their issue, today we're going to ask some questions even about ourselves, because I tend to think, as I look at my life, and I look at the way that we practice Christianity, I wonder if we haven't just sort of said, like, yeah, 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 resurrection, but we actually live very similar to those first century Corinthians. We think about the resurrection this time of year when it's Easter season, but we kind of take it and then, and then we leave it somewhere in the theoretical. And it's, it's not something that's, that's really internalized for us. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to, we're going to look at this issue of the resurrection. And, and what if... What if it's not true? Paul supposes the question, what if the resurrection isn't true? And then he, and, and he lays out an argument for us. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right at verse 1. Right at verse 1. And it says this. It says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. Now, what I'm going to do with this is, for several verses here, I'm just going to kind of pull out phrases here and there to make sure that we understand what Paul's saying. And the first one I want to emphasize is, is that Paul, what Paul's saying is, I remind you, brothers. Okay, I remind you, brothers. What we're going to be talking about and what, what Paul's saying to them, first off, he's talking, about, he's talking to people that he calls brothers. He uses the word brothers six times in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It sets the context for us very importantly. That, in, in that Paul is very specifically talking to people who would consider themselves within the Christian faith. They're a part of the church. They are brothers in the faith. And, and actually, the translation is gender neutral. It could be brothers or sisters. Okay? So those who, those who claim to, to be Christians, those who claim the name of Christ, those who already believe, so the, the emphasis here is on remembering something. Remembering something. Okay? From there, he says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. It's important that we understand that we're talking about gospel. We're talking about good news. That, that term gospel just refers us to the to good news. And what they meant by gospel or good news, we sort of, we sort of have it as part of our, our Christian language. But, but in this context, a gospel was a narrative of hope. It was a complete story that, that contains hope or good news at the end of it. It's a happy ending story. But it's not just a story that, that stays out there. It's actually like a meta-narrative. It's a narrative that explains my story, a story that, that I, can, I can make sense of my own story because of this story. 
all right? So he says, he says I, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, right? You are being saved. Now, this ought to strike us as a little unusual, right? Because he's talking to brothers and sisters in the faith. He's talking to people who were sort of already in the tribe. But he's reminding them of something that he preached to them, that they received, and in which they stand. But then he says, by which you are being saved. It's a present continuous language. It's happening right now. You are being saved. And it stands not, I won't say in contrast, but in complement to, to our ideas about salvation. We tend to think of salvation as a turning of the page or a line that we cross. So that a, a conversion. I went from one thing to another. And salvation is that. Paul's not arguing that it's not. He's saying that you, they received it. Okay? They, they received it. But he is saying that, that it's, it's something that is ongoing. It's ongoing. And so what he's saying about this gospel is that this gospel, this good news, it's an instrument of what God is doing in our lives. God's using it as a tool in our life to do something that he refers to very, very vividly, very pointedly there as salvation, that we are being saved by this gospel. Not like, yes, I did. Saved is not something, in this context, what Paul's saying is it's not something that I did and I've now moved past. It's something that I am now in the midst of as a brother or sister in Christ. And so he says, you are being saved. And then he says this if, right? If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. If you hold fast. So he, he makes this statement. Just try to follow his argument. And, and forgive me for doing this just line by line. But I think it's important that we set this up and understand Paul's premise and what he's going to say about the, about the resurrection, about the gospel. Because he, he's telling us that brothers and sisters in Christ, we have this good news this good news, this gospel, and it's this gospel that is saving us. It's saving us. If we hold fast to it, if we latch on to it, if we retain it. Remember where he started? I would remind you. I would remind you to hold tightly to this. Hold fast to it. Like, glue it to your hands. Don't let it out of your sight. You with me still? All right, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, and then he says, unless you believed in vain. Now, he's going to use vain a couple times in this, in this section. Actually, we're going to translate two different words as vain in this section. Okay? He says, unless you believed in vain. And vain here is, is a word that, that means sort of like without effect. Like it's not something that is pointless. It's something that is true, but it, it has no impact or no effect. Let me give you an example, Okay? I believe that a diet of French fries and ice cream is going to lead to an early demise. I believe that. And yet, I usually get my daily dose of French fries and ice cream. Okay? It's similar to what Paul's saying here. He says, look, you can accept the gospel, but if you don't hold fast to it, if it doesn't come, move from, from facts that I accept to something internal, it's kind of like my belief that a diet of ice cream and, and french fries is going to lead to an early demise. Like, 
it has no effect. It has no impact on my life. It's true. It's true. But that belief is in vain. It has no impact. Okay? So, so forget for a minute, forget ice cream and french fries. Sorry, I know. Like, it's almost lunch-ish. Okay, brunch-ish. But move it from, from french fries and ice cream into the gospel. What Paul's saying is if I, I hold the gospel out here and I say, it's true, I accept it, okay? He's not at this, in this argument, he's not saying that doesn't make you one of us Christians, but he is saying it has no impact on your life. It's ineffectual. It's sort of meaningless, Okay? And that's where he starts this whole section. That's where he starts this whole section. He goes on. Look at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul says he delivered something to them. Okay, He delivered what he also received. This is also important in this message because what Paul is saying is this. He's saying the gospel that Paul's about to, to share, the, the good news, this story, he says it didn't originate with me. It didn't originate with me, Paul. Paul's saying, I just delivered it to you. I delivered what I had received. The gospel is a hand-me-down story. And and we ought to be, this is just a moment, I think what Paul's saying to us is, be on your guard, be warned, because a new gospel, when someone has a new gospel, you ought to be concerned about that. There's, quite frankly, nothing new about the gospel. The gospel is what it has always been. And anyone who proclaims the true gospel is just handing you something that that they were handed from someone else, who was handed to them from someone else, and on and on and back it goes. And this is what Paul's saying, and he says it's of first importance. It's it's primacy. It's actually proto in the in, in the Greek. It, it, it's like a prototype. It's it's the first of its kind. This there's this this first importance. And now we're taking this first thing and handing it down faithfully generation to generation without alteration. The gospel, he's saying, is not an evolving story. It's it's not a a narrative that's changing and shifting. And I do believe it's important for us to catch this because there are, please hear me straight, there are gospel narratives that are alive and well in Western culture that are going to be different from what Paul shares here, that are, that, are, that are a component part of the gospel, but they've elevated something to the only thing. Perhaps it's, it's moral uprightness or moral fidelity, faithfulness. That's the gospel. Well, moral fidelity and moral faithfulness is a, is a function of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It also could be power. I, I hear this one a lot in, 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 in today's Messages that, that the gospel is a story of, of the powerless being put into power by God. And while I would tell you that, that that is a part of what's going on, that's not the gospel that Paul's going to present. Be on your guard. Be on your guard because a new gospel is a false gospel. There is nothing new about this gospel message. This is what Paul's telling us. He's saying, what I handed on to you I had received from others. What I handed on to you, I had received from others, and I'm, I'm passing it down as the most important thing of first importance. 
So look at what he says. Keep reading there in verse 3. This is the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. This is the gospel statement as, as Paul presents it. He says, this is the one, this is the authentic one that you ought to be able to recognize. It contains three important parts. But these three important parts, he's arguing, they line up with the rest of the scriptures, with all of the the rest of the message of Christ. They are these three things. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and was raised. And Christ appeared in the flesh. These are three component parts that are critical to our understanding of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and raised. And Christ appeared to, us, to, to people in the flesh. He goes on to continue the argument. We're going to come back to that, obviously. But he goes on to continue the argument in verse 6. He says, Then he, Christ, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Paul's making an argument, and he's making an argument based on a couple things. I think one of the things he's doing here is he's saying, Look, this gospel that I'm giving you isn't some sort of secret. Does that sound familiar when you hear like a new gospel today? It's a secret that's been revealed to me. There might be books entitled such things, the secret gospel or just the secret sometimes, right? No, 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 it's this secret or this special message that I've received. And, and, and what Paul is saying is this, forget about all that. That's not the way that the gospel developed. The true gospel, the authentic gospel, the genuine article. It was handed down to me and it's verifiable, I think his, even his argument here where he says, look, some of these people, not some of these, these people are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. They witnessed it. I think the challenge is this, sort of like there's a challenge right now, like can anyone provide evidence of a 1994 movie with Sinbad called Shazam? And I would say on that similarly, be, beware if you see something that seems legitimate, it's probably a fake, okay? But in this case, What Paul is saying is, check. You can check this story. There are people in in this first century context, there are people walking around who saw Jesus alive, who know he was buried and dead, and who saw him alive again. It's verifiable. This is his his argument in that context. It happened. He he mentions James. It doesn't give us the specific James. Given the fact it doesn't tell us who the father is, it's assumed that this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a reluctant convert, probably also the the author of the book of James in the New Testament, a a, a reluctant follower. Imagine if you lived with God in the flesh growing up, right? Like, that's an impossible standard. Anybody have a perfect sibling? Okay, this guy had had it, like, way worse than you did. And now... You're confronted with the reality that of all the people who have ever lived in the history of this nation of Israel that, that, were, that could have been the Messiah, could have been our Savior, could have been the one anointed by God to solve our problems, it's my brother? This guy was a reluctant convert. Fair enough, right? But I think what Paul's doing is he's arguing something here and he's saying, look, this, there are people who were reluctant to this who came around. There were people who needed convinced and they were convinced. See 
James, the brother of Jesus. And he goes on in verse 8 to talk about himself. He says, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared, he being Christ, appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, he emphasizes this idea of being untimely born. And I don't use this, I mean, the technical language here, because we don't talk about being untimely born. What he actually says word for word translated, he says, last of all, to one who was miscarried is the actual word he uses. One One who didn't emerge alive. He says, that's me, Paul says. He, he appeared to me. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. What's more reluctant than Saul, now Paul the apostle? What he's saying is, look, I didn't want this to be true. I didn't want the fact that Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried and raised, and that he appeared to people. I didn't want it to be true. In fact, I'd given my life over to the work of trying to kill those who believed it. Trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. But he says, on my testimony, on my testimony, will you believe he appeared also to me? And he wraps it up. Look at these last couple verses. Verse 10. He says, but, remember, I'm the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You see what's repeated over and over again? This gospel message. Here's, how, here's what Paul understood. And this is, why, this is why Paul became the ambassador of Christ. He understood this message. That this reality about Jesus, it produces grace. It produces grace. Look, the outcome, the outcome of the initiating work, God has initiated through his son. Christ came. He died for our sins, was buried and raised. He appeared to many. That work is the initiating event that brings grace to us. You see, what Paul understood, I didn't want it to be true. I didn't want it to be the case. I did everything I could to try and stop this message in its tracks. If, if, no one, if there's someone who doesn't deserve grace, Paul says, it's me. In other places, here he calls himself least of the apostles. In other places, he says that, that he's the chief of sinners. This was his understanding. I've done, I've done everything I, I could that would, that would keep me from being able to receive the love of God. And yet, because this gospel message is true, I receive grace. Grace is the outcome, this deep abiding grace of God's favor resting on us. And then he says, uses this phrase again that, again, we translate as vain. He says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It's a different word. It's a different word. Instead of, instead of without effect or ineffectual, the first vain, this one actually means worthless or empty belief. Like it's a, it's a meaningless belief. 
You see, he says this idea of grace, the fact that I've been given grace, it's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It impacts everything. A belief that would be in vain would be something like, no, 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 the key to good health is French fries and ice cream, right? If you just do that, you'll be fine. The problem is that's not true. I can believe it all I want. I can follow it perfectly. I can work towards that end. It's not going to give me what the belief says it ought. It'll give me reality, right? So Paul's argument here, his argument is that the gospel matters And it doesn't just matter as some sort of fact that's out there. It doesn't just matter as some sort of like, I can nod my head and agree with it. The gospel matters in that it impacts my life. He goes on to say, all of my work, I work and work and work. But even that work is driven by the grace of God. Everything I do is driven by the grace of God. So what about us? What about us? We have cultural baggage that we bring to these ideas. And I just want to share something with you because I think there's just a, a short little clip here that will, that will stand in contrast to God's grace that will help us understand some of our cultural baggage. So you know how the Corinthians had this baggage that they brought to the idea of the afterlife, and which, which was, it just kind of doesn't happen? We have our own baggage. But our baggage, right, our baggage, I think Paul speaks directly into it as well, because I think a lot of our baggage, we might laugh at this, we might even turn up our nose and say, <laughs> but here's the thing, I think a lot of the baggage that we bring to this idea is really similar to that, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a decently good person, 
Even those of us who maybe have accepted Christ, we might look at that and still say, yeah, but if you put my life on the scales, it's not grace. It's not God's grace that outweighs my sin. It's, I'm, I'm good. Like, why wouldn't God want me around? And we start to couch this life as all that there is. Maybe defining the next life in the terms of this life. That, that beyond this, there's just more of this. But Paul is making an argument for us, to us, with us, and he's saying that, that that's not all that there is. He's saying that's a vain belief. It's a vain idea to believe anything other than the gospel of Christ producing grace in you. You can't balance the ledger. Even, again, even those who would be called brothers and sisters in Christ, we still, we can't just come up with enough good stuff to make it possible to be righteous. We still need God's grace. And so we've got, we've got this, this truth that we need to come in touch with and contact with. And just like we sang, or heard sung, and we will sing, it's the same power that was, that was alive in Christ that, that raised him from the dead. That same power is the power that's at work in us. Look at the way Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1. He says, I, oh no, it went too far. I am sure of this, he said, that he who began this good work will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That, that there's, there's a work that has been begun in us and it will be brought to completion. It's the same power that's, that was, that's at work in Christ, and the gospel is at work in us. He writes to the church in Rome, and there's some big words here, but hang with me because I want to make sure we catch this big idea. It says, For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined, it's there, it's in the Bible, to be conformed to the image of his Son. So those, whom, those that God knew, he determined beforehand that they would be made to be like his Son, Christ. The work of being saved is ongoing. This is consistent with 1 Corinthians 15. It says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's our brothers again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So do you catch this? Here's what's happened. God has initiated with us in a way that, that the, the, the death of Christ for our sins his burial and resurrection have provided the grace necessary for us to have a relationship with him. He's done all the work. He justified us. He made us right legally. We stand before God unaccused. That's grace. We're blameless before him because of the sacrifice of Christ. But he's not done there. He continues to make us into little images of his son, replicas removing the power of sin in our life until ultimately the day where we meet him face to face and the work is finished. So if we're convinced, what do we do? Okay, it's a, it's, it's a powerful idea, but what do we do? I think we need to understand what Paul's saying here to the church in Corinth. We need to preach this gospel to ourselves. Remind yourselves, brothers. Hold fast to it. 
This needs to be a, a regular practice of our lives, that we, we know it. And so here's the deal. We want to help. We've made these cards. We've done this before, okay? But we made these cards. On your way out, you're going to get a card. It has the, the text, roughly, of, of those, those few verses. The card says this, We believe Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then he bodily appeared to many. We want you to take a card, take a couple, and regularly, routinely, through your day, preach this to yourself. It's, I know it feels weird, but would you rather feel weird and participate in the abiding grace of Christ in your life or not feel weird and continue to kind of mill about without the, the abiding grace of God? But take these, because here's the deal. Why, why should we do this? Why should we do this? You see, the, as Paul writes, the gospel produces this abiding grace in us, this sense that, that God is ultimately the one who is in control and has the authority to make me right. I not only can't, I can't do it, I, I don't have to. I'm free from having to produce it on my own. And I think each these three statements, they produce this living grace. These three statements produce this living grace in this way. And, and this might, let me say it to you this way. Let me simplify. I think that, I think most of us have five fingers. I should be careful, like with a farming background. Um, but if you have five fingers, I think it's easy to remember each of these, right? Christ died for our sins. Can you remember that? Christ died for our sins. There's one for each finger. He died for our sins. And, and saying that, taking that from out here, something that I just accept, and bringing it here, it produces grace in me because it reminds me of, of my sin. That I'm, I am still, I am not free of my sin. I am still cap very, very capable to, and, and prone towards participating in sin in my life that ruins my relationships. It ruins those that I care about. I think preaching this message, Christ died for our sins, preaching it to myself, convicts me of my ongoing sin. And it reminds me that I can't fix it. And the second part of that, that Christ was buried and raised. Look, five again. You have another hand? Yeah. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and raised. It produces the abiding grace because I'm reminded that the solution to my sin requires a supernatural explanation. I cannot outwork my sin. I cannot just get my act together in a way that's going to make things right in my life. If I'm trying to live my life separate and apart from the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead, if I'm trying to live separate from that, it will not produce righteousness, and it does not result in the abiding grace in my life. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the tribe. I'm on the team with Jesus, but I'm not experiencing his power because he's still bringing dead things to life. We don't have to despair. He's still making things that are dead in sin come back to life. He's taking broken marriages and he's healing them. He is. He's restoring relationships. 
He's making it so that our work isn't futile, but our work provides goodness and flourishing for those around us. He's doing it. Things that without him are empty. They're meaningless. But with him, they have purpose. And finally, look, it's five again. Christ appeared in the flesh. You need a third hand for this, but whatever, okay? But Christ appeared in the flesh. The reality is this. This life is not the end. Like Christ, we will live on. We will live on. And I would add to this, one thing that this should remind us of, it should make us aware of, is that in some ways we are now the flesh of Christ appearing to others. We are the body of Christ. We take his resurrection. We take his sacrifice for sin to others. We are the living embodiment of this gospel message. Just as he appeared to many, we're to make him known to many. So I'm going to invite the band back up to close us. And we're going to sing the song that they finished with again. And I would invite you, don't blow this off. Take a card this week. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it because it might feel awkward or, or overly simplistic. But all week, repeat that creed. Take that truth, that truth that Christ died for us. He was buried and raised. And he appeared to many. Take it from out there and bring it here. Make it your own. Internalize it. Bring it to life in you. I know I complain and I hear others complain on a regular basis that we just don't feel like we're experiencing the power of Christ. And I want to invite us into an opportunity over these next several weeks to do the thing that Paul said. Remind yourself of this gospel. Preach it to yourself. Put it in front of your eyes so that it becomes automatic. In just a second, I'm going to pray, but will you say it with me? Will you say it? Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and raised. Christ appeared in the flesh. Let's pray. God, we believe that this is true and we want it to be something that doesn't stay apart from us or separate from us or just distant. But we want your resurrection power to be true in our lives. But I, I know that we forget. So God, would you please hear our song know our hearts, would you prompt us to be people who are living your resurrection? And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.